Welcome to the Reformed Media Review. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. I have with me James Dalzell, who is part-time professor of theology and church history at Cairn University in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. And this morning we're going to speak about a book written by Rob Lister titled God is Impassable and Impassioned Toward a Theology of Divine Emotion. It is published by Crossway in 2012. James, welcome to the program and tell us about this book. Thanks, Camden. It's good to be here. Um, yeah, well, let's get right into it. Um, Rob Lister's book is probably the first, at least as far as I know, the first full book-length uh, treatment of divine impassibility from a Protestant perspective. Uh, there are a number of treatments uh, for, uh, against it from a liberal Protestant perspective and then in favor of it from a conservative Roman Catholic perspective, and this is an attempt by a Protestant uh, professor of theology at uh, Talbot School of Divinity, Biola University, um, to present a defense of the doctrine of impassibility and try to make sense of it historically. Um, he, I think, rightly recognizes that this doctrine, maybe more than many other classical doctrines, has been uh, really savagely attacked in the last uh, 100 years, and it has try it has been making a modest comeback among some reform folk and especially some uh, sort of neo Thomists in the Catholic tradition. Um, and Lister attempts to Lister attempts to really win people back, especially evangelicals, back to the doctrine. Um, in particular, he does I think a really good job in the book spotlighting the the um, caricature that modern passibilists have have uh, used to smear the doctrine of divine impassibility. And particularly, he's looking uh, at people like Jürgen Moltmann and others who are really champions of the suffering God theology. And Moltmann and others have accused the classical doctrine of impassibility of meaning basically that God is, is cold, inert, lifeless, uncaring, uh, removed from creation. And for them, that's the exact opposite of what they uh, would say biblical Christianity would present. What Lister does is he really challenges whether this uh, is an accurate representation of the tradition. And a good part of the book, nearly half the book, is devoted to looking at the historical um, uh, affirmation of the doctrine in the patristic age, uh, the medievals, time of the Reformation, and in some modern impassibilists as well. And what he turns up as sort of the mainstream Christian tradition is that throughout the entire history of the Church, this, those same impassibilists have also been adamant in their affirmations of God's love, of his joy, of his wrath and anger towards sin, uh, and, and uh, attributes such as these. And he makes the point that if impassibility was to render God uh, cold and uncaring, then no impassibilist ever believed impassibility in that sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it's it's a it's a fair point that he makes against just turning up the evidence that impassibility does not mean God is removed or indifferent to creation, or that he's unloving, or that he's not really angry with sin, or, or things like that. Um, the other thing that Lister does well, I think, when dealing with the modern passibilist tradition is shows really the inadequacy of their own proposals, their own explanations uh, for God's involvement with the world, and really shows that a passibilist God is not 
a God of hope who can bring us through suffering and to triumph. The idea that God uh, is sort of down here uh, undergoing the same experiences and vulnerable to the same uh, changes and conditions as we are, uh, and is not standing over those things as the one who is sovereignly controlling time and history, uh, ends up leaving God as much a victim as anyone who's ever suffered. And he does a gr- I won't go into the detail just in the interest of time, but he does a good job surveying all, all, many different aspects of passivalist thought that really turn out to be uh, inadequate uh, sources of consolation for the Christian. And so these are the areas where I think he does uh, quite a good job. Now, that that kind of gets at half of his title, God is Impassable, um, but the other half of his title is that God is impassioned. And what he wants to say positively uh, is that the Christian tradition, rather than, rather than saying that God was without passions, was that the impassable God was also passionate. Um, I think those in the Reformed tradition are going to at least take pause at the language because Anglicans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists have long confessed that God is without passions. Uh, how then can we make sense of this notion that God is impassioned, as, as Lister proposes it? Um, the way that Lister understands impassibility, so there's many many things he says about it that are right. He's certainly correct to point out that impassibilists in the mainstream tradition believe that God was loving, joyful, angry with sin, etc. Um, but the way that he understands impassibility is essentially as a doctrine of God's voluntary self-control over his emotions. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you a quote, um, and he kind of derives this from J.I. Packer, who says basically the same. In the main, the classical tradition simply sought to preserve the notion that as the self-determined sovereign, God is not subject to the emotional effects that are, and these are his emphasis, involuntarily or unexpectedly wrung from him by creatures. A couple things with that definition. Uh, For Lister, God is self-determined. And this can be taken in two ways, and in fact, I think it turns up in both ways in the book. We can understand a more innocent notion of self-determined to mean simply that God is the one who determines his actions toward and on behalf of creatures, uh, simply saying that God is the one who, who determines history and determines what he's going to do uh, in and for creatures throughout history. But self-determined could also be taken in a more radical, voluntarist sense in which God determines himself. Uh, in a more proper sense, his own uh, intrinsic actuality, that there, is some, that there is some inner state of God that is brought about by his free and voluntary will, so that God's joy, for instance, uh, perhaps is an affection that is produced uh, as a result of will, or his, or his love or affection in one instance, or his wrath in another, that these are effects in God that are produced by his will, so that God is perceived in some ways as a sort of sovereign over himself. Um, I, wanna, I would want to point out that in this book, really both aspects of self-determination come out and are affirmed by the author. Uh, the first one, which God determines creation and all that he does on behalf of creation, I think is, is a sound, uh, historically reformed approach, um, and really I have no objection to that. The idea that God is determined in his own interactuality, though, uh, is I think a more questionable, um, a more questionable notion. Um, what Lister does is when he reads the historical data, you might ask yourself, well, how does he get this idea of of 
voluntary self-control from the tradition of impassibility, and especially how does he decide that these are passions? Just I'll just say two things uh, with respect to that. First, uh, Lister takes it for granted that any reference in the history of the mainstream Orthodox Christian tradition to things like love and joy and wrath, etc., uh, that those terms simply prove that those authors believe God has passions. Now, my, my one question with this is, those same authors are usually uh, quite adamant that God has no passions. Um, now, the issue might just be a semantic one, in which Lister is just using the modern term of passion, where we call anything that is love, joy, wrath, etc., uh, to be a passion. And if if it were merely semantics, and uh, that were all he that was all he was doing, uh, you know, it would be innocent enough. We might quibble over the terms used. In fact, uh, two modern impassibilists that I think are very faithful to the tradition, more so than Lister, uh, Thomas Wayne Andy, and Paul Helm are both willing in a qualified way to speak about God as impassioned or to speak about God as passionate. Um, what they mean, though, is not, that God is, is not that God controls or brings about voluntarily inner states of emotion or, ch- or, or emotional changes in himself the way that Lister does. What they mean by passionate is something more like the older notion of God as purely actual, so that when Wayne Andy says that God is impassable because he's perfectly passionate, what he means is not that God's impassable because he's perfectly self-controlled, he means that God is perfect that God is impassable because he's perfectly actual in all his affections so that his love is so is so perfect in actuality that it cannot be moved to a greater actuality than it eternally possesses and his hatred or anger towards sin is so perfectly actual in him that he that it cannot be diminished or uh, increased within God. Now, its manifestation towards creatures of course can be increased or diminished, uh, but that's because those are the odd extra-temporal works of God, not the odd intra-actuality. So, in this case, when Lister says that God has passions, uh, he doesn't mean it in the way that when Andy and Helm might, in terms of just a a sort of modern way of trying to express pure actuality, uh, he believes that God undergoes changes of inner emotional state, and that the thing that makes him impassable is not that he doesn't change in his emotion, but that he's the one controlling the change. He quotes uh, J.K. Mosley, uh, his 1925 work on divine impassibility, mm. in which he interprets Augustine as saying that God has perfect control of his feelings. And Lister calls this, quote, emotional sovereignty, and yeah. quote, emotional, or sovereign emotional lordship. So that God is lord over some aspects of his own inner actual life. So I think in this sense we have to be aware, going into the book, that there is a, at the very core of his definition of what impassibility means, there's a voluntarist aspect. Now, how does, how or where does he think he finds this in the in the classical tradition. And in a way, you can kind of understand why he does. He reads the historical uh, texts that say that impassibility entails that God is not emotionally is not emotionally controlled by creatures, or that his affections are not uh, are not provoked in him by the by the uh, voluntary uh, initiation of creatures, uh, which of course is is a right point. And but list, what Lister surmises from this, what he concludes is, well, if God is not if God is not inv- if God is not involuntarily moved by creatures. It must be because these historical authors believe that God is voluntarily moved by his own will. So he, take, so he, he assumes that God must be moved by some will. 
That's the, he doesn't argue for that. He simply assumes it. And he concludes that since God isn't moved by the will of creatures involuntarily, it must be that he's moved by his own will voluntarily, hence his voluntarism. Um, I would want to argue that actually what those historic, the opposite of being emotionally controlled by creatures in the historic, in the classical tradition is not that God is emotionally then controlled by himself, but rather that God is not emotionally controlled. That is with respect to his own inner actuality. Um, The opposite of being controlled by creatures is not self-control. The opposite of being controlled by creatures is that God is purely actual. A purely actual God is impervious to any voluntary control, whether the control of creatures or the control of himself. In fact, Wayne Andy makes the same point, that God, does not, God is impassable not only with respect to the will of creatures, as Lister rightly argues, but also with respect to his own will, which Lister actually explicitly disagrees with uh, in the volume, because Lister wants to leave room for God to change his own inner emotional life uh, in correlation uh, with creation. Um, so... I think this is the if I if I could register a disagreement from the reform perspective, it would be this that uh, you're reading along through the book and you get this feeling like uh, perhaps Lister is committed to something like Bardian actualism, and I I hesitated to conclude that until I got to page 177 in the book, uh, in which he explicitly quotes Bart. Uh, in terms of in terms of his actualism, Bart's idea that the will of God is in some sense um, in some sense sovereign over even inner actualities in God's life, um, and this is an important quote from Bart that Lister affirms on page 177. The personal God has a heart; he can feel and be affected. He is not. He, this is Bart. He is not impassable. He cannot be moved from outside by an extraneous power. But this does not mean that he is not capable of moving himself. No, God is moved and stirred, yet not like ourselves in powerlessness, but in his own free power, in his innermost being, moved and touched by himself. Uh, and and Lister, Lister likes everything in that statement except that Bart denies impassibility. And what Lister wants to say is, if Bart had only understood that the mainstream Christian tradition had been voluntarist all along, he would have realized that he could hold on to his voluntarism and his, his notion of divine freedom uh, and still subscribe to impassibility. Now, because of my complaint about pure act, which, by the way, Lister says virtually nothing about pure actuality in this volume, which is just shocking to me, um, I think because of because of his denial of, of uh, or his implicit denial of pure actuality in his affirmation of Bardian actualism, what you have is you have a God whose emotional life is, in some sense, becoming or in the process of coming to be. So Lister can say um, that God's condescension toward creatures, um, he'll make the point that it's revelational, which of course I think is, is a right emphasis, but there's also an ontological side to God's condescension, uh, so that Lister says that this is seen in, quote, certain divine attributes and in certain dispositions of passions of passion that God takes on in respect to his creation. I guess I just want to ask the question, what, what does he mean by God taking on certain divine attributes? Meaning, the tradition believed that God was perfectly identical with all that is in him. If God takes on new attributes, 
these attributes cannot be identical with the eternal nature. And in fact, Lister says exactly that. He has a whole section in which he affirms that God is both uh, timeless and temporal. Timeless in his essence, but temporal with respect to uh, the new uh, divine attributes and dispositions that he takes on correlative to creation. Um, he speaks of God's unfolding experience in the temporally progressive covenantal context. And it's, and it's this unfolding experience that brings to God uh, new inner dispositions and, and even properties. He talks about God, quote, taking on the property of acting in time. Um, so my one, other, my one other concern, just in this connection that I would put out there, is that if God takes on new properties, or the property of acting in time, takes on new actualities into himself, um, and, he's, and he's quite clear that, the, that, the transi- that these transitions are not transitions in the revelation of himself or in his works on extra, but that these are transitions in God, that's his language. Um, if God takes on new actuality of emotive state or whatever into himself, and it's not identical with his timeless essence, it's very difficult to conclude that his God is simple in as much as there's more to God than his essence. All that is in God is not God from all eternity. There are things, there are realities in God that are acquired in God's temporal interaction with creation. So from a reform standpoint, uh, it would be very difficult to say that God is without parts, because for Lister, God is indeed composed of essence and, in the older language, accidents. He won't use that language, but that is uh, I believe the only way to really understand the the new divine attributes. One other, just maybe sidebar on that. Mm-hmm. Um, to talk about receiving new attributes is already in conflict with divine simplicity, but to go so far as to call these new divine attributes um, really, I think, borders on the edge of saying that there is something like a freely willed divinity. Do you see what I'm saying? So yeah. that if if the property of acting in time is a divine attribute that God doesn't have from all eternity, you have divine attributes that God causes for himself, and in what sense is it divine if it is in fact caused or brought about by his free will? Um, it, 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 ordinarily, we would call that a creature, um, but that's, that's the difficulty I have. How, in what sense are these created or freely willed divine properties. Perhaps that's just a matter of language, and it's just an unfortunate uh, misstep, but I think in the whole it does, it does sort of fit with Lister's more, um, more uh, Bardian notion of God becoming, at least in some accidental, if not essential sense. Um, Maybe I should say a few things in terms of upshots. I already have mentioned that there are, you know, he makes some good points against the passibilists. Um, I also found that a number of the passages that he exegetes in favor of God's sovereignty and God's control over uh, the created human condition and why and how it is that God is not caught unawares by creatures. I I thought that many of those passages were actually very sound and helpful. I wasn't sure how the how they actually contributed to his core thesis of God as emotionally sovereign over himself intrinsically. Uh, but they were, I mean, for what they're worth, I felt like many of his, the points of biblical exegesis were uh, were quite sound. Also, his final chapter on uh, Christology, in which he explains the suffering of Christ in his human nature and why the suffering of Christ does not wash back into the divinity of Christ, was really uh, quite sound and quite Chalcedonian. And I, I would commend that chapter uh, to any reader as a good as a good summary of how. 
traditional impassibility would approach the two natures of Christ. Um, so I'll, I think that's a that's a fair representation of what we of what we see uh, in Lister's volume. Now, do you have a, a lengthier written review of this that's going to be available anywhere? Yes, I I anticipate that there will be a printed review of this um, in the Westminster Theological Journal, uh, hopefully in the fall issue of 2013, if not the the uh, spring issue of 2014. Uh, and that will that will direct readers uh, more specifically to passages in the text and spotlight uh, some of the strengths. Right. And what I think is at, at the very heart of it, though, at the very central thesis of it, uh, it doesn't allow you to uphold uh, a classical Reformed understanding of divine simplicity or God without passions or divine immutability or, or even autemporal eternality. Um, so I think these are you know these are my at the very least, yellow flags that I might raise uh, for those that are getting into Lister's book. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate it, James. Thank you for your attention, also your expertise, and for uh, letting us know about this book. Again, it is God is Impassable and Impassioned Toward a Theology of Divine Emotion, written by Rob Lister and published by Crossway. And it's available at uh, many different places where you're going to find theological books. Uh, I want to point people back to our website as well, reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as other reviews, and especially other episodes and uh, interviews we've had with James Dalzell in the past. Uh, Thanks for joining us, James. And for the listener, this has been the Reformed Media Review.